kids, I hope you have a, a great time in the back. If you're remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. If you're wondering where that is in your Bible, it's sort of right in the middle um, towards the end of the Old Testament. There's two prophets called Zechariah and Zephaniah at the end of the Old Testament. We're going to look at a passage from uh, the longer of those books, Zechariah chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can follow on the screens or in the bulletin as well. Uh, if you've been with us this summer, you'll know that um, we've been considering a, a building project all summer uh, that is recorded for, for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, it happened about 2,500 years ago, um, right around the year 500 BCE, and this is when the, the Persian Empire was the greatest empire in the ancient world. And at this point, the Jews had been granted permission to return back to their homeland, uh, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and to rebuild their temple. Uh, it was a long project. Uh, it took them close to 15 years just to build the temple, and that was partially because there was opposition both from inside and, of course, from outside. Uh, but perhaps the biggest challenge to this building project was uh, the apathy of God's people, uh, maybe halfway through the project, of just getting it done, right? It seemed to be dragging on, and so there was a lot of apathy uh, that was setting in. They'd become a bit more concerned about building their own homes, uh, building their own wealth, than they were building the house of God, and that's because their priorities got a little bit uh, misaligned. And so God sends them two prophets. One is the prophet uh, Haggai, who we looked at a couple weeks ago, and the other was the prophet Zechariah, which we're going to look at a little bit this morning. Um, they were very different in their tactics. Haggai was very direct in what he said to God's people. He said, it's time, is, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. So Haggai just goes right after the issue. He's very direct. But God, through the prophet Zechariah, employed a very different tactic. And it all comes in one night for the prophet Zechariah. He has sort of one crazy sleepless night where he receives eight visions from God, and he is the God's prophet, is supposed to communicate those visions then to the people of God. And the point was to stir God's people into action. And so it's true of much of Scripture that at times God speaks to us very directly, um, very clear what he is trying to say. Um, but other points, God speaks to us in pictures and in images, sometimes even in visions. And I think that's part of, partly because God knows that sometimes our hearts are grabbed more by pictures and images than they are by uh, direct speech. I was reminded that this week I read an article about uh, retirement and saving for retirement. And uh, someone did a study on how to encourage young people to save for retirement. Um, young people, you know, we feel like we're invincible. I don't know if I can consider myself in that category anymore, but I'm going to act like I can. Uh, young people, we consider ourselves to be invincible, and so I can wait for retirement later in my life, and so 
uh, sometimes we wait a little bit too long. And so folks have said, well, financial planners should be more direct with young people and sit down and say, no, you really should start saving from retirement at a very young age. But they've discovered that even that sort of logical direct speech with young people doesn't really make a big difference. But they did discover something. They discovered if you can get a young person to sit down and look at an image, a computer-generated image of what they will look like themselves when they are retirement age, they will immediately start saving for retirement. Why? Because that image speaks to their hearts when direct speech doesn't really do so. And so Zechariah gives us these eight visions. We're going to consider the fourth of these nighttime visions, a vision of uh, a man named Joshua who was the high priest. So I'm going to be reading really just 10 verses, but the entirety of Zechariah chapter 3. So uh, really reflect on this sort of image and vision that comes with this. This is God's word. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem to rebuke you, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring back my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is God's word. Father, just so thankful for just the opportunity to, to worship this morning, Lord. And um, we all come to worship with a lot of things going on in our lives, um, things we're excited about, Uh, things that sadden us, um, moments of great joy and moments of great sorrow, Lord, and and yet your word is timeless. We feel like we're always changing, but your word is timeless, Lord, and so we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence with us to do that very thing. Help us to see your greatness, the wonder of the gospel, and may we leave here changed as a result. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So they say a picture is worth a thousand words. You've heard that uh, phrase before. Well, I think this vision that we just read about, this picture is is worth a thousand words, both in Zechariah's day 
and in our day as well. So this morning what I'd like to do is just look at its past significance, this vision's past significance and its present reality. It was a picture of the gospel in Zechariah's day, and it depicts for us as well the power of the gospel and how it works in our lives. It's just as real today as it was in Zechariah's day. But let's first consider just really the past significance of this vision. What did, what did all this mean coming from the prophet Zechariah to God's people at the moment in which it was received? Well, if you've been with us all summer, we've been looking at this building project, there really is a sort of a million-dollar question that is standing behind all of these books and this chapter of, uh, in the story of God's people. It's a, it's a million-dollar question that's on everybody's minds as they are rebuilding this second temple. And I call it the second temple because it was originally built uh, hundreds of years before this uh, by a king whose name was Solomon. You see, once God's people had settled in the promised land and the Lord had given them rest from all their wars and from their conflict, they knew that it was time to, to build a temple, a place that would be the center of their worship, um, and Solomon was the king assigned with this task. Uh, he built an amazingly opulent temple um, according to all the instructions that had been given to him by the Lord. Uh, he instituted the high priest. Um, he instituted all of the, the sacrifices that were a part of the worship in this temple. He did everything that he was supposed to do down to the most minute of details when it came to the temple. But the big question that had to be on his mind and on everybody else's mind as they built this temple was this. Can God really dwell with us? We've set the stage for this great party, but will the guest of honor show up? Will he really and truly dwell with his people in this great temple? And behind it is the question, how really can a God who is holy dwell with such a rebellious and imperfect people? So that was, this, that was a question that had to be in the back of Solomon's mind. So he did what he should have done with that question. He prayed. He prayed about it. And he says to God in 2 Chronicles, And now arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. And as soon as he prays this very short prayer, it tells us in 2 Chronicles that God responded. It says this, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, he didn't have to wait at all. Wouldn't that be nice? As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, just imagine this, fire comes down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God showed up. He was dwelling. He was living with his people. And so think about that. Now fast forward it to this now rebuilding of that same temple. God's people had been through a lot. They'd been through um, being conquered, being exiled. They'd been through their uh, rebellion. And so as they build this second temple, they're left again with this million-dollar question. Will God come again and live with his messy people? Will he come and dwell with us? And that takes us to the vision that we uh, looked at this morning in Zechariah. 
It's sort of a courtroom drama with the angel of the Lord, Joshua the high priest, and Satan himself. It's sort of reminiscent of what you read in the the first couple chapters of the book of Job, if you've ever read that book before. And it tells us that Satan is there as an accuser. You've got Joshua, who is the high priest, which means he was the representative of God's people, and really that he took the temperature of the spiritual health of God's people as the high priest. Um, He was a very important figure, um, not only in the first temple, but in this wave of exiles that came back. And so both Joshua and Satan are standing before the angel of the Lord. And the issue here is Joshua's vestments, his clothing that he wore as the high priest, and his vestments, his clothing is filthy. It's filthy really is a picture of the spiritual health of God's people at this moment, which also is filthy. Why? Because they had rebelled, uh, they'd forgotten God's law, they had worshipped other idols, they uh, had been conquered and exiled, they'd embraced these pagan foreign religions, they were caring more about their own wealth and their concerns than the temple of God. And so these people themselves spiritually were filthy. And of course they had to wonder, Could God really dwell in the midst of this mess? Could he live in the filth? Could a holy God dwell amongst an impure and sinful people? And Satan is there and he's pointing his finger at this very issue, essentially accusing Joshua, saying, God won't dwell with you. Look at how filthy you are. Look at your clothing. Give up this pipe dream. There's no way God will dwell with you. And so God steps in, he rebukes Satan, and he takes away the filthy clothes of Joshua. He redresses him with pure vestments. He puts a clean turban on his head, and he declares, I will remove the iniquity of this land. Now, I really think there was an issue here. Uh, God's people were sinful, they were rebellious, and so what happens? God springs into action. He forgives their iniquity. He clothes them with pure garments, meaning that God would indeed dwell with them, but not because of what they had done, but because of what God had done for them. He even says earlier, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. God's people had not earned or merited God's presence with them, but instead it was going to come through forgiveness and it was going to come through mercy. And so I have to imagine as God's people are laying the foundation of this new temple, as they're putting brick upon brick to build the walls, as they're filling the walls with mortar, if that's what they used as they're building this temple, as they carved out the beams and as they uh, shaped all the golden vessels, they had to wonder, what are we doing all this for? Are, Are we doing all this for nothing? How could God dwell with us after everything that we have done? And that's where Zachariah steps in and said, yes, God will come. Not because you earned it, but because of his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. Well, this is a a beautiful story for God's people in the past, but what does it mean for you and I? What is its 
present reality. Well, I think we know there's more going on to this book of Zechariah than, than really meets the eye because as you get into the Gospels and you read the Passion Narratives, which is the, the story of the last week of the life of Jesus Christ, there is no book that is more quoted than the prophet Zechariah in that final week of Jesus' life. And that should key us into the fact that there's more going on here than just some nighttime vision that Zechariah had. You see, you and I, we, we might not wonder whether God is going to dwell in a house that we have built for him, but I think we do ask a lot of related questions. We wonder, how could God fill our lives? We wonder, how could God be present in our lives? We wonder, how could God ever want an ongoing, never-ending, loving relationship with us? And I think that question is an important one because we are just as filthy and sinful as God's people in the Old Testament. We forget about God's law and we live for ourselves. We don't perfectly love God and, and perfectly love others the way we ought to. We give ourselves to idols, to lesser things and, and to lesser loves. We uh, adopt and adapt to the systems of the world that are around us. We tend to care more about our own concerns than the mission of God. And so just like Joshua, our clothes as it were, our, our righteousness, our goodness, our spiritual resume is just as filthy. Think about it this way. God knows everything that we've done and everything we've not done. He knows everything we've done in secret. He knows our inmost thoughts and our inmost feelings because nothing is hidden from the sight of God. And that's an overwhelming thought to consider. And often when we do consider that, then the accuser comes. There's no way that God could fill my life. There's no way he could love me after the things that I've done in my life. There's no way I could ever get right with God or ever experience eternal reward. My sin, my filth, my messiness is the final word on my life. It is the final judgment. But in those moments, God interrupts. He rebukes the accuser because our sin does not need to be the final word or the final judgment. Why? Because there is mercy. There is forgiveness. There is righteousness and a purity that comes from above. Not because we've earned it, but because our God is gracious. And so what the New Testament does is it picks up on this image by saying that at the moment of our salvation, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ our Savior. Just like Joshua got new clothes in that vision, we are clothed in the goodness of our Savior. Uh, and His goodness covers over our filth and our mess. As one commentator put it, this is the power of the gospel. It removes the basis for any charge the accuser might level. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 8 when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. What is Paul saying here? 
He's saying there is no condemnation. There is no accusation that can stand against us. Why? Because the sentence of judgment has been lifted. We've been plucked from the fire and given a righteousness that is not our own. You might be wondering, how on earth could this be possible? Well, if you keep reading in the book of Zechariah, it gives us some hints as to how this could be possible. If you go in chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In chapter 13, it tells, it starts talking about a shepherd king who will be struck down. And it tells us that he will be one who is betrayed and pierced, verse 11, or chapter 11 and chapter 12. What is Zechariah doing? He's describing Jesus Christ himself, our great high priest who's come bringing salvation, who's come to rescue us. In the last week of his life, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be betrayed. He would be pierced. He would be crucified. A shepherd who was struck down, and he did it all so that you and I could be saved. He did it so that we could be forgiven. He did it so we could be given a righteousness and a goodness that is not our own so that we could enter into an ongoing, never-ending love relationship with him. So friends, do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder if God could really love you? Do you ever wonder if God could really dwell with you after all that you've said and done and been through Do you ever wonder if you could ever get into heaven with the clothes that you have that are so filthy? Well, the answer is yes. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you. And so the scriptures tell us to place our faith in him, our righteous branch, and receive the gift of salvation. Imagine that you learned uh, that an incredibly important person was coming to your home for dinner. Think of it like the president or the the king of England now or some celebrity that you've always uh, been impressed with and you learn that they're coming to your house. So what do you do? You're going to get to work. You're going to clean everything from top to bottom. Uh, You might repair some things that are broken that you've always wanted to repair for a while. Uh, You might think about the finest meal or the finest wine to serve. You want to get that menu just right for this really important person. You you think about what you're going to wear and you want to make sure you got your clothes just right. You brush up on all your manners because you don't want to offend everybody. But even then when that person comes, you're insecure all evening, right? You're a worried mess afraid of what impression I'm leaving with this person. Am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to do the right thing? And now take a moment and consider that the God of the universe has chosen to dwell within you. With all your thoughts and all your sinfulness and all your rebellions, He wants to dwell with you and He knows it all. So what's your response? Well, you might spring into action. 
You might want to clean up your language or maybe patch up a broken relationship. You might think, I've got to start volunteering my time a little bit more or helping little old ladies across the street. Uh, you might say, I'm going to make sure I attend church every Sunday and read my Bible every single day. Maybe I'm going to donate some money to charity. A little, any number of things come to mind as we spring into action. And as good as all those things are, they will never be enough. In fact, God isn't often moved by it. He just wants you. And so instead, friends, rest in his love, rest in his forgiveness, and receive that great gift of salvation, the great gift of grace, the great gift of God's mercy. Let's pray.